Well, hello, everybody. My name's Amy Foster, and it's just my great joy to be a part of Women in the Word with you and also to be a member of the teaching team. So thanks for being here. And to our dear friends at West Campus, thank you so much for joining us. We love that we're studying God's Word all together in two different locations. It's a great privilege. Today I'm going to talk to you about a couple of things, but I'm going to start out and tell you about something that is near and dear to my heart, and that's ice cream. And I'm on a sugar fast right now, so I'm thinking about ice cream a lot. But there's a, a couple of guys that share this in common with me. I've read about these two sets of, uh, they were brothers-in-laws, and in the late 40s, they were passionate about ice cream. And they started brainstorming about how they could have the very best neighborhood ice cream store. And they launched that store, and they quickly became an ice cream empire. And their marketing idea was brilliant. It utilized the number 31. I know you know what I'm talking about. Their idea was, we're going to offer more than three or four choices. We're going to offer great diversity. We're going to offer 31 flavors of ice cream, and perhaps you could try a different flavor for every day of the month. How great would that be? Well, they were an immediate success, and they were a success because they understood people love ice cream and people love diversity, and their success changed the ice cream industry forever. Everyone who came after them understood they would have to offer great diversity to be successful. But here's the curious thing. Everyone did follow suit. Everyone started offering a multitude of flavors, and they started tracking year after year what were their top sellers. And to their surprise, year after year, what kept showing up among the toppest grossing sales for ice cream flavors? Vanilla. Plain old vanilla. How crazy is that? The ice cream industry learned their second lesson. Um, yes, you do need to have diversity and lots of different flavors to be successful, but you also have to have a solid core. You had to have a solid core that was vanilla in order to compete in the ice cream market. All right, why am I talking about ice cream? I think heaven is going to be a little bit like an ice cream parlor. And that makes me happy. There will be much diversity in heaven. We know there will be different cultures and nationalities and ethnicities and languages and skin colors. And there will even be differences among those of us who call ourselves Christian, different Christian denominations, differences in the way we worship. There will be people who worship with voices and instruments and people who worship a cappella. There will be people who have communion with wine and others who have communion with grape juice. There will be people who spontaneously worship by standing and raising their hands. And there will be others who sit and kneel and stand in a prescribed order. There will even be people there who use incense and light candles. And there will be others who use PowerPoints and outlines, and big video screens. We will all be there together. There will be great diversity, but in the midst of all that diversity, we will all be united by a common core, won't we? A common core of truth, much like good vanilla. And in church language, we call this common core primary doctrine. Um, orthodoxy, meaning correct truth. That's what we call it. These are the basic ideas about Christianity that we all believe and we all agree upon. And we know that in areas that aren't primary, there's room for diversity. But in the primary truths that we believe, there needs to be unanimity and it needs to be a core that knits us all together. 
Well, the core was being questioned in Antioch in the, the passage that we're studying today. And the core that was questioned then is the same core that continues to be questioned all throughout our history and even today. And that's what is our primary doctrine. And here's the core that they're calling into question. Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, he entered history at a specific time and he took on flesh and he died on a cross to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. And God raised him from the dead on the third day. Faith in Jesus is required for us to have forgiveness in our sins. Faith in Jesus is required to reconcile us to a holy God. Christ alone restores us to God. That's core doctrine. That's a primary belief that as Christians we must embrace. That's what's being challenged in Acts 15. We've talked a little bit about what the culture was like during this time in history when the church was growing and emerging. And we know the culture was deeply divided among strong ethnic lines. Um, the very first believers, they were from the Jewish race, and that was appropriate because God had originally called out the Jews to be his special people and to represent him in the world. And Jesus came through those people. So the first believers were Jewish. But after that, the person and the work of Jesus was quickly changing that, and Christianity was moving beyond that borders. In the book of Acts, we've already read so far that Christianity began in Jerusalem among the Jews, and then very quickly it expanded to whom? The Samaritans, the half-breeds despised by the Jews. The Samaritans received the good news, and they believe in Jesus. And then who was next? The Ethiopian eunuch. Not only was he from another country, but I bet he had a different skin color too. The Ethiopian believes. In chapter 10, we have the glorious passage where Peter is given a vision by God and he's instructed to go to the home of Cornelius, who was a Gentile. And when Peter obeys and goes and he preaches the gospel, Cornelius and his entire household was saved. They believed and they received the Holy Spirit on that day. Then we know Hellenists were saved. They were Greeks, also Gentiles. Then just last week we studied chapter 13 as Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey encounter more and more opposition and re resistance from Jewish leaders. They turn their attention to the Gentiles and the Gentiles believe and they receive the Holy Spirit and their lives are changed forever. What we see in Acts is that God is crossing all the ethnic lines of the day and God is knocking down cultural barriers and he's bringing diversity together. All these diverse people are coming together in God's one true church as God had designed it. And they were all coming together and they were bound together by a common belief. And it was belief in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But we know, because we've all been bound together in different versions of families, when you bind people together, they don't always agree all the time. And we know that when you bring in different expectations and different cultures and different preferences and prejudices, conflicts occur, don't they? Even in the best of families, conflicts occur, and that's what's happening in God's new church. Acts 15 is a story of conflict as God is drawing his church together. So open your Bibles and begin reading with me. 
beginning in verse 1, chapter 15. And just so you'll know what's happening, Paul and Barnabas have returned from their first missionary journey. They've returned to the church in Antioch. They're reporting all that God has done. And, and the biggest thing that they're reporting is God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are receiving the gospel. So they're reporting that, and this is what happens. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. All right, so God's drawing his church together, and the first major conflict comes up, and this is called a conflict of truth. And that means it's a conflict over what they believe. It's a conflict over their core that was so important to them. Truth about salvation was of vital importance to the new church, and it's of vital importance to us today. And the question that keeps going um, unanswered is, what must I do to be saved? But we know that question has been answered uh, from the very beginning. They keep addressing, what must I do to be saved? The men who are self-appointed, nobody's sending them. They've come down from Judea. Um, we're going to call them Judaizers. That's what they're called in other places in the scriptures. So that's how I'm going to identify them for you today. And they stand up and they say, no, no, you must be circumcised in addition to having faith. That's what you must do to be saved. They're saying the salvation equation looks like faith plus circumcision equals salvation. But we know that that was contrary to the new teaching of Jesus. That was totally contrary to his words. Jesus speaking in John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And Peter himself preached on the porch or the portico of the temple area in Acts 4. And he said, salvation is found in no one else. By no other name under heaven can we be saved but the name of Jesus. That's the preaching that they've been doing. That's the way they've been answering this question, but they're being challenged now. And it's somewhat understandable that they would be questioned. In the Old Testament, we remember God had called out the Hebrew people, the Jews, to be his special people. And he was going to bless them, and he was going to give them specific laws to keep. And they were asked to be in a covenant with God where they followed his laws. And one of those laws was, as a sign of the covenant, their men would be circumcised. That was ingrained in their history and their heritage, and that was the way they lived. But Jewish thinking would now have to change, wouldn't it? Because Jesus had ushered in a new covenant. His covenant was new, and his covenant was replacing the old covenant and the old Levitical laws and the old ideas about circumcision. 
on your verse sheet. Acts 13.39 says, Through him, Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. We're seeing a new covenant here. Essentially, these Judaizers, these Jewish believers, they were requiring any new converts to Christianity to also convert to Judaism. Become circumcised, become a Jew, and believe in Jesus, and then you can be a Christian. It says there was great dissension and great debate about that teaching, and that's because it wasn't just about adopting the culture and habits of the Jews. It was about altering the new truth that Jesus had declared. The new covenant rested fully on the shed blood of Jesus, the reality that Jesus took our penalty for us and God was satisfied with his work. We know God was satisfied because Jesus was resurrected. That's what the new covenant rests on, that reality. And nothing more than belief in that was required. So to add circumcision to this equation was saying Jesus' work on the cross wasn't quite enough. It wasn't enough to save us. We have to add our own works to it. And that idea corrupts the core truth of the gospel. It totally corrupts it. It corrupted it then, and it still corrupts it today where that message is being taught. So it was a conflict of truth, and when conflicts of truth occur, resolution is necessary, unanimity is necessary, and the resolution will come from properly understanding God's words from properly understanding the scripture. So when conflicts of truth occur for us today, we don't just take a vote and we don't let the majority or the popular opinion rule. Just like the people who've come before us, we go to the source of authority and we look for a biblical response. That's how we resolve conflicts of truth. Now, we have a huge benefit today. When this happened in Acts, they couldn't say, well, let's see. Let's look over here and see what we have in Galatians. And let's see what Peter says in 1 Peter. They couldn't do that because they didn't have this. You have to always remember, they didn't have the New Testament yet. They had the Old Testament. They had the words and the teachings of Jesus, but most of those had been taught and, and passed down through the oral tradition. They weren't in writing yet. They had a few letters and teachings from the apostles, but not the majority of them. And all those new things that they did have, none of them had been compiled together, and none of them had been agreed upon as the authoritative word of God. They didn't have that yet. So where would they go for an authoritative answer to this question? They would go to Jerusalem. And they would go to Jerusalem and they would meet with the elders and the apostles there. And today we call this first meeting the Jerusalem Council. So Jerusalem was not a magical place of authority. It wasn't like because of the location it had a blessing of authority. Jerusalem was simply the headquarters for the new church. And you remember when the believers were gathered together the very first time and the Holy Spirit came, it happened in Jerusalem. The church really was born in Jerusalem. And it became the central place. We've been studying in these last few chapters of Acts that that center is really shifting to Antioch over the next years. But Originally, it was Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place that the apostles used as their home base as they came and went from their missionary journeys. And Jerusalem really symbolized the unity of God's new church. 
So they go to Jerusalem and they meet with the apostles and the elders. And I think it's important for us to stop a minute and understand the role of the apostle in the New Testament church. Um, Apostles did have a unique position of authority. But before we go any further on that conversation, we need to say real clearly, they were just men. They were just men. But they were men who had authority. The definition of apostle is a special messenger sent with the authority of the sender. So they were special messengers who carried the authority of their sender. And who was their sender? We know today who their sender was. If if you want to take some time later in the week, go back and look at Mark 3. This is where Jesus calls out his 12 apostles. It says he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So we know Jesus himself picked the first 12 apostles, but one of those was Judas, who ultimately betrayed Jesus and killed himself. So when we first started studying Acts in the very first chapter, they are led by the Holy Spirit to replace that 12th apostle. And led by the Holy Spirit, they choose Matthias to take that spot. Those were the apostles selected by Jesus. And then we have this one other interesting situation that pops up in Acts 9. We remember the story of Saul, who was the Pharisee who persecuted the church and persecuted the new Christians. And Saul has a face-to-face encounter with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Jesus blinds him with a bright light and very clearly tells him, you're going to be my messenger. You're going to be a special instrument, and you're going to deliver my name both to the children of Israel and to the Gentiles and to kings. So Paul also is this authoritative messenger. These were the apostles, and they had the authority of God. They were chosen by God through Jesus to speak his message. These men would be God's authorized messengers, and God would need this role at this time because God was communicating something new, a new revelation for the world to understand the new covenant. We have apostles today, but they have a different role, and the role is different because there is no new revelation today. God has given us his complete revelation here, complete in the Old and the New Testament, and we have that today. So we don't need the role of an apostle bringing a new revelation to us. So they go to Jerusalem, and Paul and Barnabas all along the way are declaring what God has done. They declare it in Jerusalem. When it says up to Jerusalem, if you're paying attention to these maps and that's confusing to you, don't think there's some other Antioch down south. Antioch was north. They always say up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was elevated. It sat at a higher elevation. And so that's why they come down from Jerusalem and they go up to Jerusalem. So we know that some, uh, some folks came down from Judea to talk to them. Now they're all in Jerusalem talking. Um, let's see, in verse 5, that's when it tells us the Judaizers or the Pharisees arrive. They're here in Jerusalem also. And they stand up and they report what God has done is not adequate. These new Christians, these new converts, they need to be circumcised and They need to follow the Mosaic laws. So we keep kind of adding to it here. Now I think it's interesting to note that the scripture calls these men believers. It says they are believers. So we have to trust 
that they have placed their faith in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the important thing about that for me is a true believer can be an error. A true believer can make an error in understanding truth, and that may be what's happening here, but it's dangerous when we believe in errors. And that's what they're doing. They're arguing the gospel's not adequate, and we have to start adding man's effort to God's work. I do think it's interesting to remind you this argument has already been addressed by Peter in Jerusalem. It's not a new argument. Back after Peter went to Cornelius' home and everyone believed in chapter 11, some of these groups come to Peter and they criticize him for associating with Gentiles. And Peter relays that whole experience, beginning with the vision by God and his instruction to go to Cornelius. And Peter says to them, if God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when Peter made that argument, it says they fell silent. They couldn't come back from that argument. But unfortunately, the argument keeps showing up. It's been 10 years, 10 years since Peter defends that action with uh, the Gentile believers to this moment when it pops up again at the Jerusalem Council. We know this same debate continued to occur multiple places wherever new believers um, and the church was growing. We know it caused so many problems among the new church, the new Christians in Galatia, that theologians believe it's the reason why Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. We know that it caused problems and conflict between Peter and Paul at one point. I think it truly was the first bad penny that just kept showing up and kept showing up and kept showing up. All right, let's read beginning in verse 7. This is where Peter stands up at the Jerusalem council and gives his position. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So they hear from Peter and Paul and Barnabas and the message is harmonious and they are in agreement with each other. Peter makes it very clear the growth of the church is God's activity. It's all God's activity. It was God who chose for the Gentiles to hear and believe. It was God who chose Peter to deliver that message. It was God who gave a public seal of approval by displaying the gift of the Holy Spirit in those Gentiles. And it was God who cleansed their hearts by faith, not by circumcision. Very clearly there, verse 9, he cleansed their hearts by faith. If you're a person who likes to mark in your Bibles, I'd circle faith right there. That's, that's pivotal. That's important. He cleansed their heart by faith. Peter's testimony is this. God is doing this work. God is not discriminating. And God is not asking for our extra work or effort. Peter goes on to make it clear this argument is actually putting God to the test. 
And the word test there means testing the limits of what God would permit. Testing the limits of what God permits. I thought, how often have we seen this in in a toddler or a young child? They know they're not supposed to play in the street. And so they get right up to the edge and they put their toe out, and then they get on the edge of the street just waiting. How far can I go before my mom yanks me back out of the street? The exact same word was used for Ananias and Sapphira. How far could they go? How much dishonesty could they get away with before God pulled them back? And we know how that ended for them. God says, don't test me. So I think we have to stop and consider here that when we perpetuate a conflict of truth, We may be testing God, and that's a dangerous thing to do. So the key question, what must I do to be saved? He's answering it here. Verse 11 really gives the answer. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. If you circled faith, go back in there and circle grace. We see grace and faith working together here. Grace is undeserved favor undeserved mercy. I think grace is a holy God's activity in the life of a sinner. Salvation is available because of Jesus' gracious work on the cross, and it's a work that we can never earn or deserve, and it's a work that we can never replicate or add to. It's a work that we must simply believe in, place our faith in it. Salvation by grace through faith alone, is a core and essential doctrine for Christians to embrace. Paul would later write Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Well, Paul and Barnabas then stand up. They testify to the exact same thing, and they say God has performed signs and wonders. That means God's authenticating what he's doing here. And then James joins in, and you may be thinking now, who is this James? He's a different James. He was the chief elder at the Jerusalem church, and he was the half-brother of Jesus. He was the child of Mary and Joseph. And we believe that he came to faith in Jesus at some point after Jesus' crucifixion. And James is the leader, so he's the spokesperson for the church in Jerusalem. Let's listen to what he adds to this, beginning in verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And James quotes the prophet Amos here. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from old. Then James goes on to recommend, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaimed him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So James, who is a Jew by birth and is living and following Jewish customs, he stands up and he uh, refers to Peter 
using Peter's old Hebrew name, Simeon. That might have been confusing to you. He's Simon Peter, Simeon. That's Peter's Hebrew name. James points out we've heard from an authoritative witness what God is doing here. And God has given evidence that it is his work by sending the Holy Spirit to these Gentiles. The only thing needed at this point is for this truth to be corroborated with God's word with God's scriptures. And that's what James stands up and does. He stands up and he brings God's word into this argument. He quotes the Old Testament prophet Amos. So we have to remember, this was the part of the scriptures they did have. This was the part of the scriptures that they embraced and accepted as the true word from God. He quotes Amos, who talks about rebuilding the tent of David. Tent of David means the nation of Israel. We think most likely this is a distant prophecy showing that one day God's people will be rebuilt and included in those people will be the Gentiles who are called by God's name. And we know that Isaiah and Malachi also had prophetic statements talking about the nations, plural, not just the Jews, suggesting other people outside the Jewish race would be a part of God's family. Issues of truth must be decided using the word of God. Always the word of God, not popular opinion, not people's human desires, but looking to the authoritative word of God. That's our resource. And it is more accessible to us today. We don't have to go to the Jerusalem Council because we have the whole thing. We have it all in the Old Testament and the New Testament together. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So today, just like James did, when someone claims to have a new revelation from God or when a sharp disagreement occurs about core truth of our faith, we have the complete word of God to help us resolve that conflict. It reminded me of the words of the psalmist, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Well, they are resolved, and James, as the leader, um, declares this decision. He makes a recommendation. Don't add any other burden to the Gentile believers. Actually, the language says, don't annoy them with this anymore. Don't annoy them and add a burden to them. Um, Don't add anything to the salvation equation but faith. Faith in Christ alone. James does go on to make some suggestions for how these new Gentile Christians might live in a loving way as all these cultures are uh, coming together. And we're going to unpack that just in a minute. But first I want to let you know they agree to communicate this decision by a letter. And it's going to be a circular letter, meaning they intend for it to go to Antioch and then be passed around. They want this message communicated everywhere where the conflict has stirred up the people of faith, and they want this to be something that has lasting significance. So James recommends that the new Gentile believers abstain from a few things. He recommends that they abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And this is a little curious. These are all specific Old Testament practices that God had instructed the Jews to live this way, and God had told his followers that these things were detestable. 
And so this can be a little confusing. It can look like James is saying they have to live by the Old Testament laws, the Old Covenant laws. That's not what he's saying at all. These um, are not made as laws. They're actually made as fraternal advice. Fraternal advice that one brother would give to another brother. James is offering wisdom to the new believers. And the wisdom will help them live in a way that avoids conflicts within God's church. So these were not requirements for salvation. This was just fraternal advice on how they would live together in love. You know, there are two types of conflicts that we see here in this passage. We've already talked about a conflict of truth is over what we believe. Now we're going to talk about conflicts of love. Conflicts of love are how we live together. Conflicts over how we live together, how we worship together, how we live out our faith together. James knows conflicts of love are sure to spring up where we have all these different cultures and ethnicities blended together. So we have to remember the new Gentile Christians up to this time have lived as pagans, haven't they? The Jews alone had pulled themselves out and lived in isolation and lived a specific way according to God's command, but everyone else lived fully in this pagan world. Um, So how would the Gentiles, the Gentile believers, how would they now live in a moral way with all their pagan friends and neighbors? And how would they also live in a loving way with their new Jewish Christian brothers? That was going to be tricky, wasn't it? And so James gives them this advice. First, he says, abstain from things polluted by idols. Okay, we have to remember, Gentile Christians, because they were not Jewish, were probably fully participating in everything else of that day, including idol worship. Idol worship was prevalent in all these different areas. Um, They probably had participated in an interesting thing I learned. When you had a big party or a big feast or maybe a big wedding reception and you needed a big place to go to, they didn't rent the VFC hall. They went to the idol temple. And they had their banquets and their feasts and their gatherings there. And if food was served, do you know what the food was? It was meat that had been offered to idols. That was a common practice. The Jews were the only ones who didn't participate in that. James knows these Gentile believers are going to continue to have opportunities and invitations to participate in things like that. And he's not saying the food is polluted and he's not saying there's any violation of the law by eating it. He's simply saying steer clear of every activity associated with idol worship because you worship the one true God. Steer clear of it, not because the food is tainted, but because it will confuse the unbelievers around you and because it will offend your Jewish brothers. Steer clear of things that offend and confuse. That's the advice there. Next, he says, abstain from sexual immorality. It's really interesting when you study the culture at this time in the ancient world. It's not that different from our world today. The Jews alone were the only ones who had boundaries around sexual activity. They were the only ones. God had said... Sexual activity is for within the confines of the marriage relationship. Outside of the Jewish race, they practiced total freedom with their sexual activity. They did not have boundaries around that. 
Um, but God had commanded the Jews to live differently, to keep sex within the confines of marriage, both to protect them and for sex to sexual intimacy to be the thing that he had intended it, for it to be, and also so that the people would willingly live by God's moral standard, not their own. Now, James knows these new Gentile Christians... They have come from pagan living. They have probably practiced total sexual freedom up to this point, and they would continue to have opportunities to practice sexual freedom. So James is letting them know God has a new moral standard of behavior for you as well, the same expectations that God had given to the Jews, both for their good and their protection and to set them apart as God's people. So that's where this instruction comes from. And then last, this instruction, abstain from what has been strangled and from blood. This was the covenant that came from Noah. If you remember when we studied Noah and the flood a few months ago, after the flood, uh, God gave Noah and his family and their followers permission to eat animals. But he put some restrictions around it. Those restrictions were for their good. These restrictions were deeply ingrained in Jewish thinking deeply a part of the way they lived and they thought and would be very difficult for people to give up. And because these laws had been proclaimed in every city, in every, in every gathering, in every place where the Jews were, these were ingrained in Jewish culture and Jewish thought and Jewish hearts and Jewish minds. These things were considered detestable. And even if God had restricted the limits on them, they would continue to be offensive to the Jews. So James is never arguing that the Old Testament laws are still in place. He's clear God has made all foods clean and Christ followers are free from the Old Testament law. But he's advising this, use your freedom and love. Use your freedom and love. You can avoid potential conflicts of love if you will be considerate to your differences and you will willingly refrain from the things that have the potential to offend others. You know, God was taking this diverse group of people and he was blending them together into his household. And just like our households, he wanted it to be a household of peace and of love and of joy. Listen to how he describes it in Ephesians 2.17. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off. Those are the Gentiles. And he preached peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Today, we can exercise our freedom and love the same way James recommended to them. How do we do that? If we have a friend who's struggling with weight or diabetes, do we plan a cookie-baking, candy-making night? We don't. If we have a friend who's a recovering alcoholic, do we invite her to a happy hour? We don't. If we have a friend who confesses she's really struggling with gossip, Will we use restraint and caution and care in the conversation that we have with her so we don't pull her into a difficult place? We will. Is that because we're legalists overemphasizing laws and rules? I don't think so. It's love. I think it's absolutely love. God has given us freedom with food and cookies and sweets and conversation. But when we willingly refrain from those things because they are difficult for other people, we love them and we create peace and harmony in God's household. 
1 Corinthians 8, 9 says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the freedom that we uh, can exercise and love. You know, I remembered one year we took a group of little eight- and nine-year-old boys out to the ballpark for a baseball game. It was a birthday party for one of my sons. And two of the little boys who were with us were, were good buddies and playmates of my sons. And as we had gotten to know them, we, we learned that they were non-believers. And as we met their family, we learned that their families were non-believing families. And so they brought cultural things to our um, interactions that we were not used to. These two particular little boys were at the back of the car helping me unload the cupcakes, and one reached to get the cupcakes out and jostled his arm a little bit and was so upset with himself, an expletive flew out of his little nine-year-old mouth. And I decided I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to say anything. But the other non-Christian little boy beside him immediately elbowed him and said, Hey, remember, we can't talk that way around them because they're... Christians. <laughs> Christians. These little nine-year-olds were adjusting their language around us. Was it legalism? They didn't want to offend us. They were loving us the best way they knew how. And that's the same fraternal advice that is offered here. Use your freedom and love. Don't offend. Don't confuse the weaker brother. All right, the chapter goes on um, to give us the detailed account of the letter that is sent back to the church in Antioch. I'm not going to read through that. You've read through it in your homework. Just let me paraphrase it. Um, the assembly in Jerusalem decides the best way to communicate this important decision. They're going to put it in a letter, and they're going to send an authorized delegation back to the church in Antioch. They're going to send Paul and Barnabas back, who have a solid reputation, and they're also going to send two extra witnesses, Silas and Judas. And it's important to note this is a formal delegation, not like the group of Judaizers who went out on their own accord and started teaching false truths and disrupting things. This group actually is credible and is commissioned, and they are taking the authorized agreement from the church in Jerusalem. I loved that the letter was addressed to the brothers who are in Antioch. That means the new Gentile Christians from the brothers who are in Jerusalem. That means the Jewish Christians. And here's what they're communicating using that word brothers. There are no stepchildren in God's family. No stepchildren. You're not less because you haven't been circumcised. You're not less because you don't follow the Old Testament laws. We're all God's brothers. Now maybe you've been reading this through thinking, hey, where is the Holy Spirit? Because we talked at the very beginning of this study that Acts is all about the acts of the Holy Spirit as God is building his church. And maybe you're thinking, where's the Holy Spirit? Well, drop down and look at verse 28, where in their letter they say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden these Gentiles, but to make these suggestions. It's important to stop and recognize here the Holy Spirit has been present all along. The Holy Spirit has been guiding this debate and this council, and the Holy Spirit has been directing this decision. They can be confident that this is the work of God's Holy Spirit because of one thing. It's in total agreement with God's word. Total agreement with the word of God here. And we have the same confidence today when our decisions are in agreement with the word of God. 
then we are led by the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit doesn't direct us into things that are contrary to his word. When our life lines up with the words of God, we are filled with God's Holy Spirit. That is a great confidence that we have here. So we know that the Spirit of God was there, and we know that the Spirit of God guides us into truth. And what is the outcome of this decision and this letter? You know, I stopped and, and paid a little attention there. In verse 24, you really see the anxiety that was produced by this false teaching, by you have to be circumcised and you have to follow the Old Testament laws. It says they were troubled by these words. They were unsettled in their minds. It had been described as putting a new burden on the young Christians. And all of those things have the potential to embitter hearts and to cause people to turn away from God's church and turn away from God's truth. So it was very important that the Jerusalem Council reach this decision and communicate it. And I loved in verse 31, it says, when they read this, these words, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. What had been troubling and unsettling now was clear, and they are rejoicing and encouraged because of it. And this shows us that the boundaries of truth and love bring encouragement and joy. They resolve conflicts, and they bring encouragement and joy. And honestly, we live in a time that suggests boundaries are troublesome and burdensome. We live in a time that suggests absolute truth is restrictive and constraining. And we see something different here. The truth that's communicated brings joy and encouragement. The boundaries are a good thing here. What we've seen in chapter 15 is this pattern of conflict resolution that the church would use for several hundred years. You know, other errors in truth would pop up. And as those errors occurred, when they were over major doctrinal issues, this is how they would settle it. The authorities and leaders of the church would come together. They would be led by the Holy Spirit. They would be bound by God's word. And they would make a decision. And that is how Christianity developed as one true Christian church. Instead of a bunch of divergent religions out there, Christianity was protected as each of these conflicts of truth was resolved using the word of God. God's spirit was working in the controversy. I think it was God's spirit that kept letting it bubble up like a bad penny so that God's word would be searched and truth would be declared and proclaimed and preserved forever. Ever. It was a protective element as God's church was being built. Now, in the very last verses of chapter 15, we see one more conflict. It's not a conflict of truth, though. It's a conflict of love. It's about how they, how they do ministry together, how they practice the God life together. Begin reading with me in verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." All right, they, we remember we studied last week. They'd gone on this missionary journey together, and now they want to go back and encourage and strengthen the churches, but they disagree about how they're going to do it. 
Uh, Barnabas wants to take his young cousin, John Mark. Paul doesn't want to because for some unknown reason, he left them in the middle of that missionary journey. The text tells us it was a sharp disagreement. That means a clash in which neither man yielded. And I had to tell you, I thought, I wouldn't want to be in an unyielding clash with the Apostle Paul. That would scare me a little bit. It kind of made me respect Barnabas quite, quite a bit here. So this was a clash. Neither man yielded. It was a major disagreement, but it was not about truth. It was about ministry practice. So there was no need to call together a council and discern, uh, determine absolute truth. There was just a requirement to act in love. Use your freedom and love here. So I thought it's interesting. This disagreement is permissible. Love is required, but unanimity is not. It's okay for believers to disagree over ministry practices. I thought maybe there are 31 ways to do ministry. Maybe that's all right. So this disagreement is permissible. Love is required, but unanimity is not. Diversity is possible as long as core truth is not compromised. That's what we see here. So they both go out, they divide, um, they take two separate missionary journeys. I think that's evidence of God's spirit also. The conflict of, this conflict of love results in an expanded ministry team covering a greater geographic area. We know that love was guiding them because we ultimately learn in the rest of the scriptures that these relationships were restored. We don't hear much more about Barnabas in the New Testament, but in Colossians 4, Paul encourages the church there to warmly welcome Barnabas. And then in 2 Timothy 4, Paul says, get Mark, he's talking about John Mark, and bring him with you for he is useful to me in ministry. So we know that love was guiding them, and in spite of their disagreements, those relationships were knit back together. We have in chapter 15 two types of conflicts and great examples for us to follow for conflict resolution. In conflicts of truth, we rely on the word of God. In all other conflicts, we are led by the law of love. And it's interesting to me, this idea of being led by the law of love, because the law of love is actually a command given to us from Jesus, and he considers it the most important command. Mark 12, verse 30 on your verse sheet, Jesus says, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and there is no other commandment greater than these. So we know that conflicts existed in the past and they will continue in the future. We must resolve them using truth and love in everything. Let's pray. God, you are good and we thank you for your grace that you come to sinners and offer us a relationship. And we thank you for faith, that you stir that in us so we can believe in you. And we thank you for salvation, that we live in a right relationship with you. It's all your work, and we are simply grateful for it. And then on top of all of that, you've given us your word, which guides us. We thank you, Lord. So we just ask that we would be good stewards of your word and good stewards of your love, and that we would let truth and love guide and direct everything that we do, Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.